Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So uh, 2023 has been a, a very, very interesting uh, year. Uh, and I think um, as we sort of draw to the close of 2023, the adage that uh, comes to my mind uh, most at the moment is um, is time in the market rather than timing the market given the exceptionally strong rallies we've seen in markets over the last uh, six or seven weeks that have made I would say uh, a very average mediocre year into an exceptional year with the MSCI world up around uh, 20% or so and uh, investment grade bonds up uh, 6% high yield up in double digits around 10% um and uh, in do- these are in dollar terms and the nasdaq up a whopping 42 43 percent um so it's been quite exceptional in terms of um uh you know market performances in in 2023 um so i have dan murray the deputy cio of efg on the podcast as well today to to help me or help us get through the quick review of 2023 yeah welcome daniel Thanks, Mose. Always good to be on here. So let's start. Uh, our first podcast for 2023 was actually around the 5th of January. And uh, as we always do quarterly, we do a um, insight podcast you know, to talk about the uh, views for the quarter ahead. And Daniel, I, I guess an interesting start because certainly we were quite out of consensus at the beginning of the year. Yeah, I think that's right. I, knew, I think to remember um, back to the beginning of the year, it feels like quite a long way away now. But at the time, of course, everyone was feeling incredibly nervous. We'd had this horrendous experience in bond markets in 2022. Equity markets had been down. There was still a lot of talk about um, the Ukrainian war, and everyone was feeling very negative. Um, and so I think um, for us, you know, we I think we felt at the time that actually the year wouldn't be as bad some people expected. Um, I think we felt optimistic in particular that inflation would come down a bit and that geopolitical tensions would ease, which you know, both I think were key factors in the change of circumstance this year, um, albeit the geopolitical tensions have also increased a bit recently. So, you know, it, it's been interesting um, and thankfully very last year in some respects, but still a challenging year in other respects. The thing that lasting for me is the kind of constant pessimism that we saw pretty much throughout the year only really changed in terms of that you know kind of pessimistic outlook uh, up until i would say uh, you know i guess two or three weeks ago actually probably because uh, even the first part of the rally was 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 with with um this sort of uh, kind of pessimistic view that you know this can't last um and i think that's been i guess a recurring theme over the course of of 2020 uh, of uh, over the course of 2023 i think for me there was kind of two or three important highlights um first of all um was artificial intelligence and ai and and all the discussion around that um because the narrative changed very very quickly from the beginning of the year to um you know slow down in economic growth conditions the fed's done too much and uh, inflation will stay persistent it was kind of very negative uh, narrative. The first inkling of of improvement start to happen, certainly for the broader markets and the tech sector in particular, rather than the broad broader market, which uh, even today still um, has been more challenged. Um, but it was lots of China optimism at the beginning of the year. That's probably something that suckered us into into a better economic surprise. Um, 
I think China's probably been the biggest disappointment this year, right? You say, Daniel? Yeah, obviously there were you know um, widespread hopes at the end of last year that uh, following the reopening after COVID, the download is stimulus and the economy would be off to the races, and we just haven't really. We've seen um, uh, you know a lot of stimulus measures announced, but very little actually impacted. So the effect on the economy has been very trivial. Sure, that's been one of the disappointments this year. I think the sort of the counterbalance to that and. One of the things that we anticipated at the beginning of the year was actually just how well Japan would do, and so I think that's equally been a you know a sort of positive surprise that a lot of people weren't expecting, but something that we did highlight in our twenty twenty three outlook. Mm, exactly. Uh, for reference, out our um, twenty twenty three outlook, we actually got seven out of ten in terms of our predictions, so actually reasonably reasonably good. In fact. Um, Paul Templeton, who actually marks our outlook, actually, when I met him the other day, he said it actually should have been 8 out of 10. But there we go. We'll live with 7 out of 10. It's still still pretty good. Um, the other sort of big news in the quarter, uh, Q1 of 2023, was obviously the demise of Silicon Valley Bank uh, signature and, of course, uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, we hosted a, uh, a special client presentation uh, in Q1, and we had the largest um, uh, group of listeners into that uh, into that um, uh, client call. I think we had all told around a thousand people joining that call. So it was one of our largest uh, that that we ever had. Um, any thoughts at that time? It seems like a distant memory now. It's things like yeah, something that I, happened like five years ago, but uh, it was only this year. <laughs> The psychology around it, I think, is really interesting. So at the time, it was a huge point of focus for the markets and for the world economy. There was lots of talk of there being a repeat of um, the global financial crisis and this just being the thin end of the wedge and how the you know, US financial system was going to suffer extreme pain. And actually, you know, the Fed dealt with it very quickly. They offered you know, enhanced liquidity conditions and liquidity access for the regional banks. The weak banks went, but they got subsumed into the system fairly easily and with minimal fuss. And actually, the incident passed pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm guessing it's probably sort of a four to six week event that felt very intense at the time, but actually moved on. But I, I get, you know, the other side to it, of course, is that at the same time we had the whole issues with Credit Suisse, which. Um, you know, continues to rumble on. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly in, in kind of Swiss private banking terms, it was the biggest earthquake in uh, in many decades, um, I guess, since 2008 at least. Um, and um, obviously it created a, a lot of kind of noise, a lot of angst, a um, lot of sort of legal wrangling around whether the um, you know, 81 bonds of Credit Suisse, uh, you know, should have been written off to zero as they were. And actually, very odd things like the equity shareholders were fared better than the um, than the hybrid or the 81 bondholders. Uh, and then you had kind of weird provisions like the 82s, uh, also in Credit Suisse, were actually made whole. <laughs> so the whole thing was you know, really challenged the whole sort of um, being of uh, hybrid debt and, and whether the legal tests were 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 proper or not uh, it's uh, is uh, i guess is one of those case studies that people talk about you know um 5 years from now uh, about uh, how they were treated 
Yeah, that's right. And obviously various legal cases ongoing at the moment. So I'm sure it will take years before the sort of dust fully settles. And of course, it will take time for UBS to integrate um, Credit Suisse and you know, the if effects and the impacts on Swiss banking system are not fully understood yet. So very interesting set of circumstances. But I think, again, a good example of something that, although it was quite major, it didn't erupt into a systemic event. It's remained contained nonetheless, despite the size of Credit Suisse and um, you know, what could have been quite a large impact on the Swiss economy actually seems to have been very well contained, which, you know, of course, we should pr be pretty grateful for. Yeah, it uh, certainly at the time, uh, it was a lot more confusing uh, to, to people in terms of what the implications were. But, uh, you know, these things is one of the lessons for all of us in any sort of investing context um, is these things have a habit of working themselves out, you know, and often at a time where they look like there's no no way out, <laughs> there usually is a way out, and, and trying to anticipate that um, and then being able to sort of position accordingly uh, was, was quite critical. And I think very quickly after Credit Suisse, we had the blowout earnings numbers from NVIDIA that suddenly you know, catalyze the whole artificial intelligence movement um, just enormously. Um, and, uh, you know, the beat that NVIDIA had in terms of their earnings numbers at the time were just absolutely extraordinary. I don't I don't think I've seen much, as big a beat in terms of expectations versus analyst expectations in my entire career, actually. Um, it was just so huge and some respects so, um, un, you know, well, it's predictable and unpredictable because if one would have sat in isolation and thought, well, this is predictable, but you know, it was the, the revealing event <laughs> uh, in terms of how fast AI was moving and more importantly, how important semiconductors were to, um, to artificial intelligence. And then, of course, also highlighted the chip wars between sort of the haves and have-nots, um, and those chip wars are, I think, at two levels. Level one is geopolitical, uh, i.e. Um, uh, China, uh, and whether China should have access to the to the fastest and the and, and the best chips that uh, NVIDIA can produce or, or others could produce. And then there was um, a fight, uh, if you like, at the corporate level, where the big guys like, uh, you know, uh, Alphabet or Google, um, Meta, Microsoft, etc., who had access to those chips and be able to pay huge sums of money to get those chips versus the sort of middle tier or even the smaller tier companies that just didn't have a chance uh, to, to be able to, um, to take on those super fast chips. Uh, and that certainly created a lot of tension in that sort of uh, Q2 period. Phenomenal the extent to which AI has entered the mainstream, and you know, whereas it was a sort of the reserve of tech heads and um, uh, you know people who were really into um, the latest and greatest, I think uh, now it's you know it's very much firmly in the sort of everyday psyche of a lot of people, and you know, very broadly used, entering everyday life, and I think it's definitely going to become you know a, a, an important part of the way that we live in the future, and which. I suppose feeds in nicely to one of the themes that we have for, for next year, but it's yeah, it's phenomenal. Just you know, it's everywhere you see AI being mentioned and AI being being cited as um, 
something that's going to contribute to businesses and contribute to you know government education defense it, you know it's everywhere and uh, it certainly is a geopolitical issue as we've seen um you know over the course of the year in fact on the 8th of june we had a podcast with jonathan rowitz and um uh it was our most popular podcast for the year so ai has definitely been uh an important reference point um and uh you know maybe we let's play a little bit of a snippet from uh from that 8th of june uh podcast uh, so let's listen in the way to think about it is if you think of the evolution of human communication, maybe just particularly focusing on written communication, you know, you really have three phases. You have the creation of the, the content, you have the duplication of it, and then you have the distribution of it. And if you think about f what phases that's gone through, really, you know, duplication was completely revolutionized when we had the printing press because we stopped having people having to hand write down documents and we could just duplicate, you know, very easily, very low cost using the printing press. And then for a very long time, we basically distributed all the printed material, you know, in the form of newspapers and books, etc. And then when the internet came along, essentially that revolutionized distribution because the cost of distribution went to almost zero. And I think that what AI looks like it could be is a revolution in the creation of content in the creation of written material amongst other things and where the, the cost of creation goes to zero because ChatGPT can you know write you anything you want it can do poetry it can do reports it can write you essays so that's a you know that's really a very very potentially very very big um impact um on on society as a whole and when we can start producing content at zero cost now it doesn't only actually apply to written material we've seen that that you know you can get it to create images you can get it to create video and for me what one of the most amazing things that I've seen is actually that it can create computer code. So you can sit there and tell it, I need a program to do X, Y, and Z, and suddenly it writes you code. So the kind of the kind of cost savings and time savings and creativity that AI looks like it could unleash is very, very significant. It's very early days, and there's a lot of refinement that needs to happen. But, you know, these revolutions take multiple decades, and I think we've just seen the beginning of it. Obviously, markets peaked then, uh, Daniel, on the... Uh on the at the end of July, uh, in fact, we all had a reasonably good summer because we were always looking for kind of volatility in the summer. We didn't really have it in the, certainly not in July, um, but we we had um, remarkably ten year bond yields uh, in the US at uh, five percent. You know, over the over the course of the next sort of uh, I guess the early autumn uh, period. Um, any thoughts around kind of what drove that? Obviously, it turned out to be. Um, a bit of a bear trap for investors, but uh, um, you know, thoughts around that thinking. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting that you know when we look at the evolution in markets this year, uh, I suppose a couple of things really stand out for me. One is that fixed income markets have been incredibly volatile this year, and the second point, which is related to that, is that fixed income and equity markets have been highly correlated, and so the uh, you know, strong performance of equity markets in the first seven months of the year, I think, was a feature of you know slowing inflation and declining expectations around um, Fed policy and other central bank policy. And then, of course, over the summer, I think we had this sort of a bit of pushback against that, and people became less sure that the Fed would cut rates and by how much, and less sure on the whole inflation outlook. And I think the whole situation just shifted very suddenly and on top of that having had a very strong first seven months of the year i think it was 
all about profit taking. So I think you know when you break it down, it was in some respects quite you know quite one dimensional and just really related to um, you know to the Fed funds and the outlook for monetary policy. I think very quickly, so um, markets kind of hit a low point um, or low point for the period um, in in October, and then you've had this just extraordinary rally. So uh, at the time of uh, of this podcast, um, you know, the S and P five hundred has been up um, um, seven weeks in a row, which, uh, according to uh, Berinia Associates, is actually the um, the most consecutive uh, weeks S and P has been up since nineteen eighty five. So it's been quite an extraordinary uh, extraordinary rally, um, and. Um, I guess what's driven it certainly in the last few days is obviously broader participation of the smaller companies. And, and I think that was down to really um, a Powell and the Fed uh, last week, which uh, which probably surprised, um, you know, you know um, many people. Yeah, it's, it's been a, you know, well, obviously November was phenomenal. And then we've had that momentum continuing in December and, you know, obviously very welcome in some respects. It's, in some respects, it's very classic, you know, sort of classic year-end rally. But I think, you know, it also reflects the fact that we're in this sort of sweet spot where rate expectations are coming lower. And, you know, um, obviously that's in line with uh, a much better inflation outlook and there's just building confidence in that. But at the same time, you know, the macro data remains pretty strong and just continues to surprise on the upside. I think, you know, probably best exemplified by ongoing strong labour markets. Exactly. And I think now we've started to see um, something that I observed in uh, my trip to uh, the US back in uh, uh, October, actually, where it was clear that um, there was, you know, everybody was pessimistic uh, that I met. And we met, I don't know, 30 odd meetings over that uh, over that uh, week. And uh, my sort of common theme was that US equity strategists were trying to pitch Japanese equities to me rather than US equities, which is probably the first time I've ever heard in my career, um, given how well Japanese equities had done and, you know, presumably where the commission pool was coming in as well um, or, or has changed significantly. So I thought that was, a, you know, that was a, certainly a big highlight for me and, and you know, probably the reason why most Wall Street strategists have, have got things wrong in 2023 is that they, um, you know, they had the entire setup wrong in terms of, you know, economy being much stronger and, and the disinflationary trends that we've seen uh, over the course of the year. And I think that's a probably a good summary of uh, of 2023 uh, in terms of uh, um, where you know things have, have developed much better than expected in terms of the US economy, um, much better than expected in terms of interest rate uh, environment and, and the disinflationary trends. And certainly as we speak today and thinking into 2024, some of those trends certainly will remain for at least for another sort of three to six months, I suspect. Yeah, no, I think certainly the build-up is interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's notable that you, know, you and I have both been to the US recently on separate trips, and I think for both of us, we found the psychology interesting and in that everybody was saying they were an outlier and they were feeling very bearish. But the reality was that when you spoke to a lot of people separately, they all had a pretty similar view. So lots of negativity, which I think from a contrarian ex, you know, perspective, is you know, probably suggests there remains underlying support for markets. 
So before we sign off, uh, let's uh, uh, let's listen in to two or three of the key highlights from our podcast in 2023. When we think of this reputation, the the kind of theory that that this fits into is called the basis of power, and I I really think this is a very it's a very simple concept, but a very powerful one. When we talk about this in psychology, we talk about it as a one-on-one. So you're influencing a person. So the first thing you think about is how much respect does this person have for me? That's your expert power. The second one is how much of a connection do I have with this person? And that's referent power. Now these two are not the same thing. If you have both, it's very powerful. So what you're aiming for is to have both. So the expert power, if you want to build expert power with someone, if you help them solve a problem that they are struggling with, that builds expert power. Referent power is not the same as liking. So it's not necessary. I mean, liking is part of referent power, but referent power is this person wants to maintain a good relationship with you. They like working with you. And so they're more likely to listen to you. Um, And that's really connecting with people on a human level. That's getting to know them. I think we have everything to to have another good year if we give the right message. If you you look to the stock market in Brazil today, you know, it's quite cheap because people are certain to what the new government will do in terms of uh, reforms, in terms of fiscal adjustment. Well, it's not our official view, but one of our colleagues um, thinks the dollar is going to be cut in half. Well, okay. uh, within the next few years and um, long run he's been pretty good so I have to pay attention to what he's saying and he lives outside the US which is always a different perspective than the one you get internally if you really have human level AI you can build the perfect personal assistant like a guardian angel that actually could give the interview here and in particular we would monetize it by cutting edge research the first thing that we would revolutionize is research it can't be that people like me need to read the research papers until they are 64 years old just to have one year where you can contribute something new to science. I mean, that's really not so efficient. So AI should be monetized by puts pushing the boundaries of research. Well, you know, really interesting in, in our work is the beginning of the year. In fact, today uh, we, we have what we call our market cycle clock and we update that uh, at the beginning of every single month. and. This is the the one year anniversary or officially the 13th month that our market cycle clock has been in a bullish zone. Uh, And that's the zone where inflation and growth are really in the bottom third of historical readings going all the way back to the 1940s. So Daniel, thank you very much for uh, for walking down memory lane. with uh, with me today, uh, so it's been a ver- very interesting year. Good for financial markets um, uh, in general, unless you're investing in uh, Chinese or Asian equities, where it's been uh, much much tougher uh, in 2023. Uh, please do listen in to our uh, 2024 outlook. Um, we have lots of content coming up, um, uh, also with our uh, investment summit, the EFG Investment Summit on the 8th and 9th of January. Uh, We will uh, use that time to play some extracts uh, and some of the presentations from those uh, those summits. So watch out for some exciting content over the coming uh, three or four weeks. So all it leaves leaves us um, to do is to uh, wish you 
all a, a great uh, holiday um, and we both Daniel and I and the team uh, and the investment team at EFG and New Capital very much looking forward to uh, speaking to you in 2024.